0: Well, it is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, like Diane said, I'm Pastor Danny. I serve here on our pastoral staff and have the pleasure of preaching this morning. Uh, I'm going to invite you all to stay seated for our teaching text. It is a bit longer and I'm going to read the whole thing uh, and then we will jump in. But we are picking it up today in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 through 19. 2 Kings Chapter five, verses one through nineteen. If you have your Bible with you, it says this: Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now Aramium raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. A good little piece of advice for Naaman's wife. I know a guy who can fix your husband's skin disease. Verse 4. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Aram... Aram's king said, go ahead, I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along ten katars of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman, so that you can cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, what? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me asking to cure someone of his skin disease. You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king. Why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elijah sent out a messenger who said, "'Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. "'Then your skin will be restored and become clean.' "'But Naaman went away in anger. "'He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out, "'stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, "'wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. "'Couldn't I wash, or aren't the rivers in Damascus, "'the Abanak and the Papar better than all of Israel's waters?' Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him, Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? We really want that skin disease gone, they're thinking. All he said to you was, wash and become clean. So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. He returned to the man of God with all of his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha and said, Now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, I swear by the life of the Lord, I serve that I won't accept anything. Yet Naaman urged Elijah to accept something, but he refused. And the Naaman said, if not, then let me, your servant, have two mule loads of earth. Your servant will never again offer entirely burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other gods except the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master comes in Ramon's temple to bow down there, and is leaning on my arm, I must also bow down in Ramon's temple. When I bow down in Ramon's temple, may the Lord forgive your servant for doing that. Elijah said to him, go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As I read this text this week, a couple of friends from the last years in ministry came to mind. A few stories. The first one, I'll call him John. Uh, ...was an older gentleman who came to our church that we are serving in in Germany. And he uh, was Turkish and part of the large Turkish mosque that was nearby our church. And he began to come again and again, often full of anxiety and depression. He actually had disability uh, due to those two things. And he would uh, participate, sit in the back, kind of help out a little bit. But one day he came up to a couple of us, and he said, My back is full of pain, and I feel so stressed and so anxious. Will you all here pray for me? And so a couple of us gathered around John, and we prayed for him, and sure enough, the pain left his body, and peace came over him, and then he never left. He showed up to everything. And the next years, and I even keep in contact with him now, has been this attempt to navigate what it means for him to be part of this Turkish-Muslim part of our neighborhood and also to wrestle with the fact that Jesus showed up and he encountered his healing power. Another friend came to mind, Sam, from Iran. Um, He came to Germany as a refugee and joined our church And one night in his refugee camp, we were having a discussion and I asked him about his story. And he told this story about how he had encountered the Lord Jesus in a dream. And that had led to some different issues when he decided to become a Christian and he ended up fleeing as a refugee. A couple months after that, he had called his father and told him about this on the phone only to be rejected by his family. But over the years, after many calls back home texts likely to his mother, his parents decided to come visit him. And I remember receiving the picture in WhatsApp when he rushed to his parents at the airport, bowing at their feet until they acknowledged him. Another friend, Sarah, from Japan, ended up in our city working at the university doing postdoctoral work uh, in a section of a very secular university that had little respect for Christianity, little respect for the church, And in a friend group that thought to believe in Jesus or to follow Jesus like we were was a bit of a joke. But she befriended someone from our church who told her slowly about a God of love. And one Christmas Eve, she encountered the love of God and began to follow Jesus. And we spent many times, many coffee meetings, attempting to navigate what it meant for her to live in the world of her university, to wrestle with the way her faith mixed with her Japanese culture, and to simply follow Jesus. Why do I share these stories? Each of these stories, including the texts we heard, rush us to a place that this morning I will call The redemptive edge. The redemptive edge. The redemptive edge is the space, that little thin area where the power and healing of God is breaking into and coming up against the systems of the world and creating a tension. The redemptive edge, as the text will show us in these story shows often creates a beautiful but painful place to live where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are situated up against each other, often running down the middle of our lives. But in this tension, at the redemptive edge, there is an invitation. And perhaps a space where we truly get to see who God is. Let me explain from the text. We are currently in 2 Kings, part of a collection in the Old Testament, um, a version that Israel told of their history, put up next against 1 and 2 Chronicles, essentially wrestling with the question of how did we, the Jewish people, end in exile? And one of the great kind of parts of 2 Kings, 1 Kings, is to say that we, we received the Torah, we had the prophets. But the temptations of the gods of other nations and the failures of our leaders led us into a place of broken relationship with God. And so much of the stories, much of First uh, and Second Kings wrestles with this space that Israel and Judah are in of how do we confess Yahweh as the only God? How do we live out this law that we have been given, this calling to be a blessing to the nations, and yet brush up with kingdom after kingdom and God after God that is worshipped by those around us? And so much of the text focuses on Israel's own attempt to remain loyal to Yahweh, to remain loyal to their God, to live this whole thing out. But when we get to chapter 5 in Second Kings, all of a sudden the focus inverts itself, and it is less about Israel's call to be faithful, and more about the nations now being the object of God's mercy. And it's here, disrupting the storyline of first and second kings, that we find God out where we would not expect him to be. This story is really odd. I would identify four oddities in the story. Number one, God is at work in an enemy general. Aram is modern-day Syria and in first and second kings israel and aram will fight with one another will struggle with one another as we hear at the beginning of this text there was a raiding party that had stolen young israelite woman and yet it says that god was present in the life of this enemy general god was not where we would expect him to be as a reader of first and second kings There's a second oddity in the story as well, and that's this, is that the king of Israel, the one who should be meditating on God's law day and night, the one who should be the model example of obedience, has no clue what is going on and mistakes the whole event as simply a pretense for war, where a young Israel maiden is the one who knows where Naaman can find healing power. The people you would expect to get it don't. And the invitation comes through one who appears meek. The third oddity in the story is that the healing takes no riches or great ritual, whether pagan or Levitical. Naaman comes with all these riches, and he kind of, when he thinks to himself, he thinks that in order to heal him, Elisha will come out and, I don't know, do some sort of dance or incantation or something, throw some incense up in the air, do whatever, and Elisha just simply said, hey, just go to the river. Just go seven times, eight times, I don't care. Just dunk in there, you'll be fine. But even if you go back to Leviticus, for such skin diseases, the law necessitates ritual, necessitates a priest. And here, Elisha bypasses both the Levitical command and Naaman's expectations because he believes, very simply, that God can heal when and and where God wants to heal. And then finally, the one we will zoom in on, the fourth oddity of the text is that an unclean Gentile is now clean and confessing the God of Israel. The very confession that defines the people of God. Once we get to the New Testament, as I'll talk about in a moment, the Gentile mission, the mission out of Israel into the world, into the nations, with whom Israel had been in tension with, becomes the central focus. That what Jesus does, his ministry, is to serve the people of God, but it is to renew them and restore them, to send them out. But when we are reading in the Old Testament, the relationship between God's people and the nations is foggy at best. Some texts give us some great future hope, that for now we're not really going to be close, we're not really going to be on the same page, but maybe someday in the future God will embrace them. Other texts project a more judgmental view into the future, saying that God's going to come back and the nations won't like it when he does. Other texts at the time say simply, they're unclean, they're pagans, they're idolaters. They were never going to get it anyway. So not being there in the New Testament yet, when this will become a central focus, to see this moment of an enemy Gentile general who has fought wars against Israel be confronted with the healing power and grace of God and confess the name of Yahweh is absolutely disruptive and odd. The oddities of the text alert the reader, both the Jew in exile and us, That God is unbound and free to enact his grace and advance his kingdom through those who don't fit the mold. Like the young captive girl rather than the king. And God is free to enact his grace and advance his kingdom for those we would perceive as the other. Naaman. The freedom of the kingdom of God is on full display. The reality that God's kingdom is always a step ahead of his people. Always already out creating the redemptive edge. Inviting us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. It is never an invitation for us to control it. To make up the kingdom ourselves. But to participate in what God is already doing. Yet I would argue... That it's at this borderline, this redemptive edge, that not only does the power and the kingdom of God move forward, but that a painful tension is created in the life of Naaman. A tension we need to know. Let me focus in and read the last few verses again. Naaman wants to give Elisha a gift in response to this healing, but is denied. Elisha does not want that. And then Naaman makes two requests. Let me read them again in verse 17. Then Naaman said, if not, if you won't let me give you a gift, or all these clothes that I just carried, Miles, to give to you, if not, then let me, your servant, have two mule loads of earth." Your servant will never again offer entirely burned offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When the master comes into Ramon's temple to bow down and is leaning on the king's arm, I must also bow down in Ramon's temple. When I bow down in Ramon's temple, may the Lord forgive your servant for doing that. Naaman's request comes down to two things. First, he asks For soil, which to us might seem like, oh, is this just kind of like a tourist thing? It was, you came to Israel as a little vacation from all the wars you were fighting. You had a nice spiritual experience. Load me up with some Israel soil, Elijah. No, it's a little bit deeper than that. In the worldview behind this text, there was the assumption that you can only worship the God of a people on their land. Once you tiptoe into Aram... It doesn't really work to worship Yahweh anymore because that's Renam's land or Ramam's land. And so Naaman's request is, I have to go back. I have to go back to my world. I have to go back to my people. I have to still live in this space that produced me. So let me take the soil so that I can spread it out somewhere. And in a foreign land, in my own culture, I can still worship Yahweh. Let me take back what I have received. And bring it to where I am from. And in where I am from, Naaman says, I am still going to be caught up in the complexity and the nuance of being a Gentile general. And even though in my heart I will not worship Ramon, by simply participating and living there, I will get caught up in it. And I need the mercy and the love of God to provide pardon for me. Naaman's request is for provision and grace to live at the redemptive edge. To figure out how to navigate the tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rahman. You see, the redemptive edge always makes a tension. Many of us don't acknowledge that because we worship the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, and we live on a soil that gives us two thumbs up for that. Many of us don't know that tension or we lack familiarity with that tension because if we're honest, it's actually our belief in God that often wins us points in the places where we spend most of our time. But when you are not from the soil of Israel and the power of the God of Israel breaks into your life, an edge, a tension is created. I think many of us who worship the God of Israel and live on his soil, so to speak, culturally, we're often afraid of this tension. We're afraid of joining many of our brothers and sisters who have to live there. Some of us are frightened by Ramon's house. We understand that people have other cultures, obligations, proclivities. We don't want to disrupt them or be disrupted ourselves. We don't want to share Jesus because we would hate to inconvenience someone with the love and grace and power of God. Rather, we fear, for some of us, what it might mean to bring the soil of Yahweh, the worship of God, into our lives, into our relationships, into our world. We fear being misunderstood and associated with the failures of the church. Some of us are not frightened by Roman's house, but we are frightened by bringing the soil there. Some of us aren't frightened by the soil of Israel at all. We want to worship and be called Christian. We want to put the Jesus fish on the bumper. We are ready to make that post on Facebook. We speak up about Jesus, but do not ask us to come near to the house of Roman or to be patient with those who are living there. We don't want to enter the tension, the redemptive edge, the messiness of when God's kingdom breaks in where we do not expect it. We don't want to be associated, or near to, or brush up with anything that might seem unclean or other. But for Naaman, and like my friends, for some of you, whose stories I know, if you are going to follow God, if you are going to know Jesus, there is no other place for you to live than the redemptive edge, that tension. If you asked me about this tension that this text presents to us, peace would not be the word that I use. I would not say that that is a peaceful place. When I have been near to people who are living there, it is easy to get anxious and concerned and worried. Will them coming to church bring them out of their culture and send the message to those still living there that, no, this isn't for you? Or will they stay? And that work of God that was in their heart will dissipate under the power of the rhythms and the cultures in which they live. It's often not peace. That I feel in that tension. But the prophet, listening to Naaman, hearing his requests, simply responds, go in peace. He pronounces in Hebrew the word shalom over this new life that Naaman must live. Shalom refers to the conditions of a person or place or the creation when it has received God's blessing, when it has been set right by him. In Elisha's response to Naaman's tension, to life at the redemptive edge, to living between the soil of God and the house of Rahman, that this is the place where God's peace and kingdom is breaking in. And so Naaman go in peace because the God who met you in the waters of the Jordan is the same God who will meet you there. In fact, Jesus will actually carry Elisha's interpretation of the event forward. In that programmatic moment in Luke 4 when Jesus returns to his home, Nazareth, and is invited into the synagogue to teach and interpret the scriptures, he pulls open the Isaiah scroll and he reads this, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favors. And as his brothers and sisters, his Jewish kin rejoice, he tells them, don't be so quick to be happy that these words are being fulfilled because let me tell you, in the kingdom program that I am initiating, these words are not just those are not just words for those who live on the soil of God, who are within the bounds of who we think God interacts with, but this ministry is going to look like the story of Naaman. And he reads and recounts to them 2 Kings 5. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian general. And when Nazareth heard that interpretation, they were filled with rage. When the kingdom of God breaks in in Jesus, and when it breaks in today through the spirit of the church, the place that it is moving toward, its inertia, the place where it will enact the most clear displays of the peace and shalom of God is the redemptive edge. The thin line between the land of Israel and the house of Ramon. That line running down the lives of the friends I told you about. When Jesus makes this clear, the people of God respond with anger because they, like the second group I mentioned, are not ready to come near to that which seems wrong, broken, or unclean in the world. Yet in their fear to join the kingdom on the edge, they themselves are warned about missing out on the kingdom itself. The prophet's words, Go in Peace, echo in the reminder of Jesus. It is here on the edge where the peace and presence of God is being found and enacted that we most clearly participate in the kingdom. Like Elisha and Jesus, we must have eyes to see and ears to to hear that even in the house of Raman, even in Aram, even in the Naamans of our day, God is present. God is already at work. God is near. God is loving. God is wooing. God is calling. And we are called to, like Elijah, simply instruct about how to receive the healing power of God. But to do this, We have to get over our visceral reaction to those who our culture or upbringing or worldview or our last church told us are unclean. And understand that like Elijah, like Jesus, God may call us to be the people who come close to them. To share the healing power of God and help them recognize the one true God. The pastoral reason why my heart burns for us as a community to be more missional, is the word, to live at the redemptive edge, is not so we convert X amount of people or have more projects on the website, although I'd love more projects on the website. My longing for us to learn at the redemptive edge is because it is where God is present. It's where we meet him. And know him and learn his heart and are stirred to worship him. I met Jesus in the church. I fell in love with him at the redemptive edge. Because there I saw the love I was told about. The grace that was explained to me breaking into the life of people. And I realize, even though I've spent most of my life on the soil of Israel, surrounded by voices that encourage me with every step I take as a pastor or a follower of Jesus, that's when I look at someone who loses much when the grace of Jesus breaks in that I realize how deeply loved I am. The greatest motivation for mission in the words of the great missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin is simply the desire to be where Jesus to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the observed dominion of the devil i have found in these stories i shared with you and i could share others that a deeper peace A deeper love enters my heart when I spend time with them. When I get into the mess and help them navigate the soil of God and the house of Ramon. And I learn in the disruption of God in their life how much God wants to disrupt me as well. This is not simply for us to get it all together as the church and then love people. No, it is when we follow God to where the kingdom is breaking in, when the redemptive edge becomes the norm of our life, that we are made most holy. We want to find holy moments in the unholy places and hear the same words spoken over us That Naaman heard from Elisha to go in peace, to be in the shalom of God at the redemptive edge. I want to invite the band back up as I pray for us, and we'll continue in worship. But as I pray, where might the Lord be inviting you to the redemptive edge? We have plenty of opportunities to participate in it that we're trying to organize. But I would guess the redemptive edge looks as easy as the life of a friend who's near to you, something in your job or your work, a person that continues to sit on your heart, a project of compassion or justice in our city. That might feel overwhelming or too big or too challenging, but the very fact that it sits on your heart and sits on your mind might because, be because God is already out there calling you to join him. Just like God was already with Naaman by the time that Elisha healed him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to join you at the redemptive edge. It feels scary. It often feels like an inconvenience. But we do not want to be people who miss the kingdom of God when it comes. And so, Lord, I pray for a spirit of conviction on some of us. On those of us who have not wanted to disturb the house of Ramon, I've wanted to keep the soil and the house separate. I pray for a spirit of conviction on those of us who love the soil of Israel. But we don't want to pack it up in a mule and take it where it needs to go. And Lord, invite us, not in obligation, not in debt, not in legalism, to participate But invite us with that tender invitation of your love, of your presence, that is already out and at work, and woos us to that edge, not because you need us, but because you want us to see you act there. For our own good, and for your glory, lead us to that edge, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. If I you stand and worship,
1: the name of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
2: Speak your name, Jesus, the name above every other
1: name. Jesus, the
2: I'll be safe.
0: of our pastor if you listened well today you heard an invitation to the redemptive edge naaman and my friends did not need an invitation when god broke into their life their life became that edge but for some of you that is your story that's your narrative and we need to learn from you but for many of us we worship the god of israel and we live on his soil We haven't had to make Naaman's request. We haven't had to live in that tension. But by the time Jesus arrives arrives at Nazareth, the call on the people of God becomes to go and join Naaman's at the boundary. To load up the mule with him and to go with him and learn how to worship And love God even in the oddest of places. And to find that God was already there at work in his spirit inviting us. In Nampa, you don't have to go far to find the redemptive edge. I'll tell you that. And my burden for us as a church is that God, through many different ways and moments and people, would disciple us into living further there between the university and our neighborhood, our own redemptive edge, that we would learn how to live life there and be with Jesus where he is. And so receive this prayer as a benediction. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us, your people, in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.